From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. So yeah, I'm in this kind of background today because I've always had a very strong interest in science fiction, space exploration. I love Star Wars and Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica when I was a kid and then later on Babylon 5 and now things like The Expanse, which this background is from. And so I'm so pleased to be able to take part in space exploration in my own way on the additive manufacturing side. That was Eliana Fu. Eliana is an industry manager of aerospace and medical at the Trump Laser Technology Center. She was educated at Imperial College, University of London, with a master's degree and PhD in material science. After working extensively in the traditional manufacturing world with TWI, then TIMET, and SpaceX, she turned her attention to added manufacturing at SpaceX and then with Relativity Space as senior engineer for additive technologies. She also serves as Women in 3D Printing Ambassador for Las Vegas and is a recipient of the TCT Women in 3D Printing Award for 2022. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. Also, if you or your company are looking for materials, qualification, or general item manufacturing support, reach out to the team through our website or via email at info at 3degreescompany.com. All right. Hi, Eliana. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Excited for the conversation. Um, and so like we do with all our guests, uh, I like to start at the beginning. So. Um, where were you born, where you grew up, kind of what got you on the those kind of stepping stones into a career in manufacturing? Well, hi, Mike. Um, it's so great to be on your show. I've seen so many people on the podcast, and um, I'm very honored that you also asked me to come on. Yeah, uh, my role at, I'm, I'm currently at Trump as um, industry manager for aerospace and medical. And I've been in AM, additive manufacturing, for about 10 years, but my path there is pretty unusual. Um, I was born and grew up in London, in the UK, and I did a master's and PhD in Imperial College, um, all traditional um, metallurgy. So titanium is like my background. And I really didn't know anything better than the usual sort of forging, casting, sheet metal type of world. Um, that's kind of what I grew up with. I mean, I spent time working in Sheffield, UK, which is the home of stainless steel. And that, that's really all I knew for like my whole life. <laughs> and um, I was working at the titanium company Timet here in Henderson, Nevada. Um, and I worked at that company for eight years. And what I noticed is um, more and more of the customers. So Timet makes traditional, it, it by the way, it's, one of the biggest titanium producers in the world, certainly in the US. Um, traditional uh, mill products, so that's sheet and plate, billet bar, forged product, ingot product, um, you know, input stock for making wire, strip, coil, all that kind of stuff. And more and more of the customers were asking for input stock or feedstock for additive processes. And I was like, well, what is that? You know, so they're asking for gas atomized powder and things like that. And we didn't make those at the time. So I just noticed more and more people asking for this. At the same time, I noticed um, that if you typed into a search box, just randomly searching careers, you know, 
titanium forge product metallurgist, like the number of jobs available I can count on one hand for the whole of North America. And if you typed in additive manufacturing engineer, there'd be hundreds of jobs. And I was like, what is that? I should find out more about that. And so I made it kind of my task to educate myself in that field. And then I realized, wow, this is like a completely complementary um, sort of field of study to traditional metalworking. Um, but it uses many of the same principles so um, you could say that, uh, you know, uh, Metal AM especially is like the offspring of welding and casting, let's say. So some of those metallurgical principles are the same. They're just taking place on a micro scale, not taking place in a 10,000 pound ingot. And so, um, you know, I, I, I really got into it when I got hired at SpaceX, who were one of my customers. And then later on at Relativity Space. So before I joined Trump, that was my my last position. Oh, I was um, additive processes engineer at uh, Relativity Space. Awesome. So maybe let's rewind it even more. So like, what what was the the first inspiration that got you interested in in metallurgy? Was there like, did you know someone that was uh, a metallurgist? Did you just uh, what was that kind of spark that got you down that track originally? I, I actually didn't know anything about metallurgy or material science. And um, it wasn't until somebody sent, when I was in high school, someone sent me a flyer for one of the colleges in London and it said, come study material science. And it was a flyer with a picture of a tennis racket a military aircraft, a commercial aircraft, and like a golf club. And then it says, material science is what stuff is made out of. And I was like, a light bulb went off saying, ding, like, Oh, why don't I study like what stuff is made out of? So that that's where it came from. And um, it, it the class did used to be called metallurgy, but as they expanded, it wasn't just metals. It's ceramics, polymers, biomaterials, and other things. So um, to be all encompassing and more inclusive, they called the field of study material science. Mm -hmm. And that that's where I, what I like about that is if you don't like metallics let's say you can do ceramics or you can do polymers or you can combine you know several different disciplines you can be on the physical metallurgy side or you can be on the computational sort of modeling side and so all these different things um you you can study within the branch of field of of material yeah. science and that's what I, I really like about it and it was only really years later that i realized additive manufacturing comes from that and that's what really sparked the imagination what was it about kind of the the metal side versus biomaterials or electronic materials that that caught your eye i don't think so i think it was maybe um metallics have this impression of being you know really strong and that's something you can make your spacecraft out of you know i was a huge fan of like star wars and star trek and stuff like that when i was growing up and then later I was really interested in stuff like Babylon 5 and uh, Battlestar Galactica and stuff like that. So like things like living on other worlds or exploring our galaxy and stuff. I mean, you 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 couldn't do that without metallic. So um, th I think the first step is just learning to fly commercially <laughs> before you fly to space. So that, that's, that's really where I got that idea from. And then... Um, I guess during my master's, I zoned in on titanium 
And then in my PhD, I, was, I just continued in titanium. And I just found that like when I discovered there were all these like different uses for it and you can do so many things with it. It is like my favorite metallic of choice. <laughs> and I'm not just saying that because I worked for a titanium company for eight years, but you know, it, 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 if you think about it, it really has lots of attractive properties. Uh, so one thing we haven't talked too much about on the, the podcast is like, what, what is the role of a, a material supplier on the metal side? Like what, what were you doing kind of on a daily basis um, when you were working for like kind of providing metal to end users? Yeah. That, so um, amazingly, um, most metals come from the ground. <laughs> it, uh, they're usually found in nature in the form of an ore. There are very few that are found uncombined with other elements. Um, so part of the company that I work for, Timet, Titanium Metals, if you read a book called Black Sand, The History of Titanium, it actually tells you how we in the 20th century have been using titanium as a metal, an engineering material. And so part of that involves extraction from the ore in an industrial setting. So once you retrieve metal from its ore, in titanium, we use a carbochlorination process called the Kroll process. And then we mix in other materials like aluminium, vanadium, and so on. And that's how we get things like Ti-64, which are alloys. So the company that I work for produced these alloys. But it's all very well to make these giant ingots. You can't make a fan blade out of that. So you have to do further processing to these ingots. And so you would make them into the form of bar. You would roll them into plate. You would sell those to other people. So those other people would be people like forging houses or casting houses. And they would take that input stock and make those into fan blades or fan discs or, or sheet metal for you know other sort of applications. So primarily in titanium, 75% of all titanium that's used industrially today is aerospace. And then the rest is like some oil and gas, some commercial, some a lot of biomaterial, actually, and um, some other decorative and cosmetic. But, uh, you know, what what the um, sort of applications are, are basically corrosion resistance, light weighting as compared to other engineering materials like steels. So titanium has displaced a lot of those heavier steels in, let's say, uh, turbine engines and things like that. And especially for aircraft, any drop of weight saving that you can get with any titanium process actually is going to help fuel economy and range, on, especially on commercial aircraft. And military aircraft have the same kind of needs as well. So if you look in the history of, you know, material science and materials development, Lots of things that we now take for granted, which is extended range on smaller, medium-sized aircraft, like 737s and so on, are accomplished with the use of titanium. If you've ever flown on a Boeing 787, they did market that aircraft as the aircraft with the most amount of carbon fiber ever used. But they do not say, and this is actually true, that is also the most amount of titanium that's ever been used on such an aircraft. And that's because carbon fiber and titanium actually go together really well. So, <laughs> but it's, it wasn't something they used in marketing, which um, as a titanium person made me sad, but um, titanium is also used 
by the way, um, for architecture. So if you've looked at the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam or the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, there's sheet metal surrounding those buildings, which is completely decorative. And it's all titanium sheet. So um, our, our company made all that sheet and someone else put it together. <laughs> and so you mentioned, as, as you were talking about, some of your kind of later stops along your career at Relatively Space and SpaceX, that they were your customers. So talk about um, kind of that transition first, maybe as kind of how, what was your role in terms of like supporting customer development? I mean, like you're a titanium company. So are people coming to you with applications like, hey, does this make sense? Or can you get us this amount or this this feedstock? What, what was kind of the day in the life like? back then yeah uh totally so my role was r&d services engineer so i basically you know on on the website there's like a, a whole bunch of data that you can download and say descriptions of this alloy or that alloy and then it says ask us a question and it'll be a free form text box and you'd fill out the text box and then ask your question those questions came to me <laughs> so i got all the questions whether they were legit questions or crazy questions but i treated them all the same i treated them like they were all deadly serious and some of them were you know people just trying to learn a bit more about titanium some of them were people who wanted information and didn't know how to go through the usual route um, so I would get some of those problems. Some, sometimes we'd have um, direct customer problems where they'd ask a question like, why does my sheet do this? Or why does, you know, my billet do that? And what's going on here? And, you know, can you tell me why this chemistry is like this? And what I found was people are very quick to make assumptions about how the materials process too much. And so it's your job as the person who sort of like translates that to the users. How did this material come about? What was the processing steps with it? And by the way, this also is, is highly applicable to additive. And what was the resultant, you know, microstructure or use of, or application of that material? How did defects come about? Why, why is it if I order this, I get that? Or if I order the material in a different format, I get something else? Why do I choose one chemistry of titanium over another? And when I say chemistry, I mean chemical composition, not chemistry as such, because everybody knows chemistry is a branch of science. <laughs> so, so, but that's just terminology. And so, um, you know, not everybody went to school for seven years and learned about titanium. So, you know, there's lots of people that just kind of need walking through the process. And so if you just do that in a, a kind of logical and a way that they can easily understand, um, that helps a lot. So part of the other um, job that I had was actually going out to our customers and teaching a basic Titanium 101 class. And so I did that at almost every single one of our customers. The only one I didn't do it, um, give it at was Pratt Whitney because they already had someone teaching that class. But I, I went everywhere with that class. I went to Brazil, China, all over Europe, all over North America um, and Japan. And um, that's basically what I learned is people want to learn about titanium. They don't know where it comes from. They want a helping hand to understand what it is they're purchasing and what they're really getting into. And so as a part, as a result of that, that's how I came to teach that class at SpaceX. And then um, 
they kind of encouraged me to apply <laughs> sometime <laughs> later, you know. And so what was that like in terms of going from kind of the material supplier side to the end user? Kind of what, what was that? Yeah, uh, that's was a that great question. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so different being on the other side of the supply chain. Um, one thing that I learned is, well, because I'd, I'd, I'd only been working in titanium forever. And so when I got to SpaceX, they give me every every metallic you could think of. <laughs> so aluminium sheets and then um, some Monel and nickel billet and things like that. And so, but to me, it's all the same, right? It's all, it's all material science. It's all metallurgy. It's the same. It's just a different composition. And so what the other thing that I realized was I'm dealing with the same people that I've been dealing with as just from the other side of the, the curtain, if you like. And then so that relationship was was very interesting. People who used to be my customers when I was at the titanium company and now my suppliers when I'm at SpaceX. And so, you know, you got to see the whole thing from a different lens. And I think it's great because you understand all the challenges that suppliers go through. Whereas when you're a customer, you're the one who's pounding on people. Where am I going to get my material? Why isn't it on my dock? Why isn't it in the condition that I want? And now you know every single thing that happens. So um, that level of understanding is really helpful. Yeah. And I imagine too, as you are kind of, you've gone like, you've sat in the shoes of of material supplier. So when, issues come up when uh, there are challenges when things don't come exactly as you expected you kind of know the right person to talk to <laughs> or like how to translate you know, it in, exactly a, in a way the person to talk to or exactly the person to call or email we have them on speed dial send them a text and say hey what's going on here so that's another thing that i think is really helpful the role of a quality engineer mm -hmm. if you can put that hat on so that you're approaching it from not just the, the manufacturing side but the quality side as well which is something that um, we don't think about um, especially if you're a manufacturing engineer because you just want it to take place versus if you're a quality engineer and then you know that there are certain steps and things that have to go through and it doesn't happen overnight. But if you're a customer, you want those results fast and you want them accurate and you want them overnight or same yeah, that, day. And that's especially the case with with additive as, uh, as, as there's so many process variables even in the machine, but then kind of getting getting the right powder, getting the right feedstock, getting the right wire or whatever it may be. And and then all the next metallurgy steps that happens to actually make a part and do that repeatedly. And and I think that is um, so interesting in the, the additive sense that um, we're still doing a lot of figuring out of, of what makes a quality part. How do you measure it? How do you document it? How do you do it repeatedly? And, and I think a lot of companies like the ones you've mentioned are are really um, blazing a new path on on that front. Yeah, but I think it is it is important that we look at sort of standardization, qualification, certification as a community and not as a bunch of individuals, mm -hmm. because I can see that there's benefit to working together collaboratively rather than trying to do everything yourself. For one thing, it's very expensive to do all that testing by yourself. You know, and another thing is, do you really want to waste your time reinventing the wheel when someone else has already got these results? And so that's why, um, you know, I think organizations like the ASTM F42 Committee on Additive are a lot faster. Absolutely. And I, I think 
I joke with we've had uh element on the <laughs> on the podcast before a lot of the doing a lot of that materials testing and so they don't mind that they that Boeing and SpaceX and everyone and their brother sends them the same titanium dog bones every <laughs> every month um to to do some of the testing on and it, it it is one of those things where all the you're getting the same result over and over again but it's just different walls and different names on the packages that you get this information from and and as organizations like you mentioned ASTM and others are are building that i think it just unlocks that kind of first step that makes it so expensive for many companies to to jump into the the supply chain to if you have to go through and and qualify each machine and each material every time yeah okay so that is what th- so i'd say for the traditional manufacturing world we already have that data we have those mm-hmm. thousands of data points over 75 plus years in you know publication like mmpds we already know that stuff for am we don't know it and people are generating it but if we combine them we would have you know several more thousand of those data points where we can a little bit more within i don't know some kind of error band be comfortable that if we repeat this over and over and over again we're going to get these results now I don't, I don't think any two processes are quite the same. So maybe there's some scatter there, but certainly we are doing the work. We are generating it. So why not share that? And that people are going to say, because that's the way I maintain profitability. And of course, you know, for a machine manufacturer, that's what they're trying to do at the end of the day is to, to sell a machine. But actually, maybe the answer is you're trying to sell the solution to the customer's problem in the best way possible and by sharing some of this data up front and being you know a bit more open about it uh that's where the collaboration that i'm talking about comes into but that's also where we don't have to waste a lot of time effort energy and uh money let's say i I know no one likes talking about money but it's an unfortunate part of life but those things are expensive and so uh, you know it's it's not just the cost of um, the test. It's a cost of your time. Your time is valuable. You could be doing something else. So you could be investigating some other uh, process or finding out something a bit more interesting rather than going over the same bunch of data over and over again. Absolutely. And, and so one of the things that as, as we kind of fast forward in your career, you're you're at Trump now. We mentioned that at the beginning. So kind of going to the machine manufacturer side, when was your, when you were at kind of the end, um, and user side kind of relatively space and and spacex were you doing a lot of um ded work were you doing primarily um laser powder bed fusion on titanium like what was that transition into trump like where where did the kind of connection happen on on that front yeah so when i was at spacex i did a lot of supplier quality actually on feedstock so it was mostly a lot of powder investigation and we did things like we surveyed powder suppliers in north america and stuff like that at, at relativity space because there are other AM processes besides powder bed. So um, there's WAM process, which is wire arc additive. That's basically a DED process. And there's other things that were, uh, when I joined Re- uh, relativity space, I was employee number 20. So the company was very, very small. And so there were lots of things to do and lots of, you know, not enough time to do them all. So Part of the stuff that I was working on was just finding out about everything, even things that are not suitable for 
the company to use at that time, but could be in the future. So doing a lot of that discovery led to other DED processes, whether, you know, they're, you know, laser DED or laser wire or hybrid arc or EB with wire, that kind of thing. So, you know, we, we looked at a whole range of different things. And um, how I came to join Trump was during the pandemic. You know, there was, um, you know, not uh, no, nobody really knew what was going on at the time. A lot of people got sent home and then you were working from home. And then it, it kind of got a bit difficult for me because I worked so closely with suppliers and I couldn't visit anybody, but I couldn't visit my suppliers, which made me really sad. So I, I, I looked around for um, a job where I could still stay involved in the additive space, but, um, you know, that I could work from home. And um, Trump had a lot of positions that were doing hybrid remote and or in the office or whatever. And so this position was one of them. And it just worked out really well. I knew them. I knew they were you know, one of the world leaders in laser technology. And I, I think that's a, a cool thing about Trump, which um, not a lot of other, uh, let's say, powder bed machine manufacturers do, is they actually manufacture their own laser sources. A lot of other people just buy them in and integrate them into, let's say, just say a box. Yeah. Well, Trump doesn't do that. Laser technology is their bread and butter. So I really like that. Um, I knew the name from a long time ago when I was back in UK. And, you know, I, I, they, I had this idea of them as being like a world leader, the Rolls Royce, let's say, <laughs> of the laser world. And um, I think that's it's a, a fairly true statement, you know, like, I'm not just saying that because I'm an employee now, but I, I, I do think that is a huge benefit when you can sort of draw from you know, 50,000 employees and people who are the equivalent of like Nobel Prize laureates in their laser physics field, developing all this stuff. You, you really can't beat that. And so do you want to talk a little bit about the the Trump business as it pertains to additive manufacturing kind of what are the the product lines or kind of what sorts of 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 offerings on the machine side do you do do you have and kind of what kind of customers are using this yeah totally so um by the way uh i will not be attending attending form next but my co-workers will so if you're at form next trump will have a booth so you can come up to them and ask them any questions but yeah basically they took it like a lot of the techniques and know-how and things that they learned from the traditional laser cutting and welding. So I don't want to say laser welding is traditional, but it, it, is, it is compared to the 3D printing world. And so they just translated that know-how into, yeah, just say like a box type of thing. So from the powder bed side, they have the True Print series. So it varies from a very small sort of build volume, which is based on a round uh, build plate rather than a round corner square. So the smallest one is the TruePint 1000. And that's very suitable R&D machine or for people who are just getting started or even people like say um, dental labs and things like that, that only you know need to build sort of small things on small scale because the uh, build plate is only 100 millimeters diameter. <laughs> so it's kind of small, but what it also means is that it's flexible. So if you want to change materials, that's possible. And it goes all the way from the 2000, which is then a 200 millimeter build plate 
that's also very suitable for um, the dental industry. We're seeing a lot of interest in, in that machine. Then the 3000 and then the 5000. So just leading up to like a bigger size. One of the things that I like about um, the Trump machines is that it is a round build plate, which you don't see very often. And so that means that, you know, you're utilizing more of the build plate. You don't have to worry about dead areas where there's like a fastener and that kind of thing. And then on the DED side, um, we have just the laser optics. So if you want to buy just the laser, we'll sell you just the laser. And that also can be integrated into a box, as it were. So there's a, the True Laser 3000, which you might have seen some video that I shared of us um, printing some 718 um, blown powder DED or LMD, as we call it at Trump, laser metal deposition. And that can also go on like one of the big machines. So that's a 7040, that's four meters long. That is actually based on equipment that's used in the sheet metal cutting world. But if you wanted to, you could mount that on um, a gantry or a robot and then just use that whole area to do your build up. So, you know, I think that that's a good flexibility to be, be able to offer powder bed and DED and not a lot of other people do that. And then one neat feature that I really like about Trump's uh, offerings in the additive world is the availability of a green laser. And now this is very exciting for me because most of the traditional, la traditional laser AM that we see is using an infrared laser. So infrared is at the wavelength that you know the human eye can't see. Um, so 1030 to 1063 nanometers, so in that range, versus if you were to use a green laser, so that's in the visible wavelength of light, so that's at 515 nanometers. There's also blue lasers at even shorter wavelength, but Trump developed the green laser technology from cutting and welding of copper sheet metal. So again, they've taken that and translated that from the sheet metal world into the 3D printing world. And what they discovered is that for very highly reflective materials like copper, aluminium, and then precious metals like gold, silver, platinum, uh, rose gold even. So a lot more of the laser light can be used on these highly reflective materials. So what happens is if you're using an IR laser and you're trying to strike and melt a particle or a piece of metal, which is highly reflective, a lot of that laser light could be bounced off. Um, it's just because of the interaction of the highly reflective nature of the metal. So the laser basically has a harder time coupling to the metal itself, right? And so if you used a green laser or something with a shorter wavelength, the metal is able to absorb more of that laser light. And so you have less scattering, less reflective losses. And that means that more of the energy from the beam is going into the metal. So that will result in 3D printed density that's higher. You have less spatter, a more stable melt pool. And then the productivity, therefore, should also go up as well because you're able to print faster you don't need to power through a whole bunch of IR uh, laser power to get that initial coupling of the, the metal there. And so 
what that should also translate to, and I would love to do a study on this, by the way, is wear and tear on the machine itself. You know, not having destroyed, um, you know, scanners or, you know, having to clean down the inside of the machine. I, I, I only know from anecdotal evidence, but I would love to do a comparison just to see what the life of things like, how does it affect recoder blades or do particles, you know, end up blocking gas flow? I, I don't know the answer to those things, but I can see that that is a huge advantage. That's really interesting. I think that's that unlocks a whole new area of, of discovery of applications with with different features and, and focusing on the laser. And, yeah. and so at, you have this awesome career path where you've been and a material supplier, you've been an end user, and now you're on the machine manufacturing side, kind of maybe kind of one takeaway from all of those experiences that you might want to share with um, with others that are kind of in the space of exploring additive careers. My main takeaway is that in all those job functions and whatever side of the supply chain you're from, everybody wants to do their best work. Everybody wants to make a sale. Everybody wants to receive good material or good parts. So everyone's trying to achieve these things, you know, ultimately to achieve the same goal, to get good material, get good printed parts. What I think is lacking is understanding and empathy from each other's position. So if you're a customer, you want that material on your dock yesterday. You don't want to wait 35 weeks lead time for sheet to end up on your on your dock. You know, if you are an end user and you order a machine, you don't want to wait six months for it to be delivered. You want someone to bring it to you, maybe fly in an Antonov and then bring it to you and install it. And I want to be able to press a button and make sure that's actually not how it works. You know, it, there's very few things that are just like plug and play. I think we are so used to instant gratification. And so what I have learned is also to be successful, you have to actually work at it. You have to actually go through a few iterations until you get to a point of, yes, this is a stable process. This is working for me. This material is is really good. This is what I like. This is doing the job for me or, you know, something like that. So my my i guess a long-winded way of saying or well, my point is i wish we would have empathy for each other to know what that person's going through yes i really want to supply you a machine but i don't have the or i'm waiting on parts or um i can't ship you that material because i have a backlog here and there are other people who were uh, handed in their orders two years before you did and so I would like to help you. And so that my, my point is that's what I think if we had more empathy for each other, we would understand each other's position in the supply chain and we would be less likely to fight against each other. I think the cooperation is really what I what I enjoy. And so uh, slip it, uh, switching notes a little bit, um, you also contribute to the industry and a lot of other other ways you're a volunteer on SME and as I wanted to highlight the type conference as well. So do you want to speak to a little bit of both of those, those elements and, and kind of share some of the efforts going on on that front? Yeah. I mean, I'm involved in women in 3d printing. I am very impressed that the additive industry is actually one where women in particular can become leaders, entrepreneurs, business owners, designers, you know, it, it's, it's, 
let's say if I wanted to open a, a company making aircraft parts, it may be more prohibitive for me to buy a 500 ton forging press and then start cranking parts out, you know, than if I started with, you know, at least uh, uh, 3D printing, metal AM equipment, laser powder bed fusion machine or something like that. And so I think that that possibility, because you don't need that level of CapEx, you don't need that level of capitalization, let's say, it's a lot easier for you to do that. And it's mind blowing. Why no one has thought of this before? You know, women in 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 three D printing is an amazing organization that helps women and girls or anybody, however you identify, um, to achieve those goals. So whether you're interested in just education or hobbies or crafts, you know, you might go to make affairs and want to three D print your own cosplay items and things like that, um, or you want to know how to go forwards with this technology as your career there are so many options and there are so many people to talk to that can give you help and advice and it's I've, I've never seen um or I should say I've only seen people being supportive at the in this organization so I'm very impressed with that um and then I was chosen as TCT women in 3d printing innovation of the year earlier this year so I, I traveled to Birmingham UK for that um and that was um I couldn't believe it I I I I really don't even know how I got nominated to be honest but um I that blew my mind and um people told me well it's because there's so much you do like all the things that you do and I'm like I don't know but I don't you you, you don't recognize all the stuff that you've done yourself because you're doing it every day and then that's another thing that I, I like to do is just encourage people. During the pandemic, you will not believe the amount of people that reached out to me and asked me questions about jobs in AM or how do I work in the space exploration industry or how do I get a job at Relativity Space or, or any of those things. And it was incredible to me that, you know, we have this medium where people can reach you and they would never have met you before. You know, and to varying degrees of success, some people, you know, achieve their goals and some people said, hey, that's not for me. But they looked at it and they did that self-examination and that was mind blowing. And so I feel like if you can help anybody like on their journey, that's more rewarding than getting a prize. Although I did enjoy getting my prize. <laughs> that's awesome. So very much well-deserved and um, all the work that you do to, to help support others in the industry is, 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 is very much appreciated by, by everyone in, in the space and, and um, look forward to seeing you at future, future events in, in 2023. And, and so I want to thank you for sharing your career story today and inspiring others to kind of explore the world of additive and, and, and all the different opportunities that it, it, it can offer. So, so thank you for joining. Thanks, Mike. And um, just on one final note, I won't be at Form Next, but I will be at the Type Conference coming up soon here in January. That's a virtual conference where I think almost all of the speakers will be female or identify as female. So if you want to join that, just make sure that you look up Type Conference 
and then make a note in your diary to join that virtually and there will be sessions from all over the world so whatever time zone you're in there will be a session for you to to join and take part in and we'd love to hear your comments and feedback and ask us questions ask any of us questions about um careers or advice in 3d printing and additive because there's so much to offer and there's so much for you to benefit from as an individual and how you can contribute to the industry it's incredible Absolutely. That's a, it's an awesome event. And so I encourage everyone to check that out.